let me start by differentiating every inspirational story, every motivational speech, every unbelievable news, every good song or movie you've ever seen or heard with the only true news that has the power to change your life and the lives of others from now and on to eternity. Some stories might inspire you. Some news might make you feel good about your life. Some speeches might motivate you to start living better or to make a difference in the world. But there's only one story that can take you from eternal death to everlasting life. Do you know what I'm talking about? The good news of what Jesus Christ has done. The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians said this, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In that text, Paul was reminding the church at Corinth of the good news that Jesus Christ had died for their sins, that he was buried, and that he overcame death in his resurrection. That gospel truth that, we, that Paul preached to the Corinthians is still true for us today. In Romans 5, Paul tells us about death in Adam and life in Christ. He tells us that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and was overcome by one man, Christ. And let's not forget something very important that also occurs in the same chapter, the fifth chapter of Romans, that Christ died for us while we were, we were still sinners, Romans 5.8. Now isn't it good news that Jesus loved us and died for our sins while we were still trapped in our trespasses? In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, Paul says, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ triumphed over sin and the powers of this world. His once and for all sacrifice is the only way for us to stand before God without sin. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12. Christ secured our redemption forever. The blood that Christ poured out for us on the cross washes away our sins and makes us blameless in the eyes of God. Paul Washer, in his book called The Gospel of Jesus Christ, says this about the gospel. Quote, The central message of Christianity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel means good news. Christianity offers the best news of all time. Indeed, it offers the only solution to our most pressing crises. No educational program, political party, or psychological therapy is able to address the deepest problem of the human race. Though human wisdom has brought many temporary benefits to us, history has also revealed how bankrupt we are to address the profound guilt and pervasive corruption under which our, our world groans. 
The gospel reveals that God has come and won the victory for us. It is good news precisely because it is not about what we have done or can do, but what God had done and will do on our behalf of on behalf of his people. The gospel declares divine intervention into a hopeless world. End quote. You see, the gospel is good news indeed, and it's what we as saints have been entrusted with. Let me ask you, have you been living as those who bring the good news to a hopeless world? Are you aware that we're instruments in the Redeemer's hands, called to make him known? If the gospel has saved you, then it has also changed you. That means that you've gone from lost to found. You've gone from spiritually dead to alive in Christ. You've gone from darkness into his marvelous light. If you've gone from hell to heaven. And if you look around you, the power of the gospel isn't, hasn't just had its effect on you, but also in this church and in, in this world. All thanks be to God. There's many things the amazing grace of God shouldn't produce in us. And one of those things the grace of God shouldn't produce within us is proud hearts, proud hearts. Because if that were true, it would diminish the glory of God and the work of Christ and make us walking contradictions. Rather, it should produce humility, which silences our, our proud hearts. Our lives can't be about ourselves. I'll say that again. Our lives can't be about ourselves. The more that that thought can penetrate our hearts and minds, the more we'll be able to see the beauty of Christ in the gospel, and the more we'll see our own depravity. Our lives need to be about Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says to the Galatians. It's no longer you, but Christ in you. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To be crucified means to spiritually identify with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. In Romans 6.6, 6, we're told our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of, to sin. Did you hear that? Our old self has been crucified. It's been put to death. Our old self was ruled by sin. And we love sin and we serve sin. But now we're a new creature, controlled by the Holy Spirit, and have a new identity, along with new desires and new affections. We now have a heart that hates sin and serves Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to continually die to ourselves. Why, you might ask? Because there's a life to be lived for God. Therefore, we need to die to selfish ambitions. We need to die to selfish expectations. And we need to die to our old way of life. So let me challenge you to die like you've never died before. Let me also challenge you not only to die like you've never died before, but to live like you've never lived before. Christ is in you and you in him. 
And I know your life will still be a battle against the flesh and putting death remaining sin, but it's no longer the dominating influence in your life because you're no longer in the flesh but in the spirit. So resolve in your heart and mind that you'll die to the things that are hindering you from fully living for God like you've never before. And on the other side of that, resolve to live unto God like you've never lived before. That's the power of God in the gospel to save you and make you more like Jesus Christ. And this morning, we'll see that the gospel is to be the message of the church and also the mission of the church. In other words, the content and the commission of the church. And to, to remind you, last time we started looking at three components of a true church that would show us what a Christ-centered church looks like. We covered the first one last time, and we'll talk about the last two components this morning. If you're taking notes, the first component was what I called the character of the church, the character of the church in verses 3 to 5. And the last two components are the content of the church and the commission of the church. So let me begin by giving you a recap of the first component before we'll move on to the last two. The character of the church in verses 3 to 5a. I'll read the text again. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So within this character of the church, we talked about three things. The unmistakable faith, the universal love, and the unchanging hope. The unchanging hope being what, was, what fueled and inflames the believer's faith and love. We talked about how our faith in Christ must be unmistakable. Others should be able to easily discern that we aren't living for ourselves, but for the one who came to live and die in our place. Paul gave thanks to God because he heard of the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus. This was a true, genuine faith. Paul, speaking of the Colossians' faith in chapter 2, verse 5, says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This young Colossian church, these young Christians displayed a faith that was firm in Christ. And Paul reminded them, these saints who are facing the poison of false teaching, that Christ supplies all their spiritual needs. He's telling these Colossian saints, your faith in Christ is enough. Christ alone is sufficient. What more could you want? Don't be deceived. Don't let anyone or anything tell you you're missing something. He's your hope in this life and in the life to come. He's above all and all that you need. Don't let your faith waver, Colossian saints. In Christ, you already have everything. And Paul's going to go on to tell the Colossians to continue in the faith. Chapter 1, verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And not only were the Colossians saints to continue in the faith, but they were also to keep establishing their faith. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, 
just as you were taught. The Colossians needed to know that their faith was in Christ. And because their faith was in Christ, it was secure. In fact, it rests on a sure and solid foundation. That's the unmistakable faith. Next, we talked about the universal love that was displayed by the saints. They had a love for all the saints. And isn't that a clear way to demonstrate your faith? By a universal love for all the saints. That couldn't have been said of the false teachers who were trying to disrupt and cause division. For them to show true spirituality had nothing to do with love. The false teachers at Colossae were telling the Colossians to be, that to be truly spiritual, you have to keep rules. You have to have a secret knowledge that only they possessed. If you wanted to be super spiritual, you had to listen to them. Paul counters this by saying, the truly saved will possess love. We need to love the same way that God has loved us. And I'm reminded of Galatians 6.10, which says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are, who are of the household of faith. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, part of the same spiritual family. And we're to love and show our love to one another. So let me ask you, when others have hurt us, are we to stop loving? When our emotional dams are ready to break, are we to stop loving? When there's a disruption in a relationship, are we to stop loving? When we disagree with another brother or sister in Christ, are we to stop loving? Gospel faith helps us to understand gospel love. Gospel faith helps us to understand gospel love. Does God ever stop loving us when we sin and stumble? Does he throw his hands up in the air? He doesn't have hands, but if he did, does, does he throw his hands up in the air despite all the reasons we give him to do so? Does he abandon us when we fail and leave us to ourselves? Of course not. He never even entertains the idea of forsaking us. God loves us the same way he loves his son. And we are in Christ. What a marvelous thing to be in Christ. But we know that didn't come without a cost. Not a cost to us, but to Christ, who was crushed by the Father's wrath for our sins. Christ understood love. He willingly sacrificed himself on our behalf. And let me encourage you to keep on loving and to keep on forgiving each other. We're all going the same direction. We're all going the same way. We're all going to, to see the same Lord. And until we enter into eternity, where there will be perfect relationships, we know there's work to be done in this area of, of love on earth. And so we must press on. We must labor on to serve and love each other. And how are we to do that? The Holy Spirit. Love is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, Paul mentions that the Colossians' love was in the Spirit. We can love each other through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's what Romans 5.5 5 tells us. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
through the Spirit, we're able to genuinely and sacrificially love each other. The unmistakable faith, the universal love, and lastly, the unchanging hope. Colossian saints' faith and love were fueled by the hope laid up for them in heaven. Worldly hope is uncertain. It's wishful thinking. It speaks of a desire for something that may or may not happen. It's un- However, biblical hope contains no uncertainty. It's unchanging. It speaks of something that is certain but not yet realized. However, the great thing is, although it's not fully realized until the future, this hope is already ours to enjoy now. In other words, we have hope now in the present. Paul says that this unchanging hope is laid up in heaven. That means it's not dependent on people or circumstances. No earthly ruler or demonic power can rob this reality of of hope for us. This hope is safe and secure, locked away in heaven, stored up, laid aside, reserved, never to be taken away or destroyed. And in the face of false teaching that sought to make the Colossian saints question whether Christ alone was sufficient for salvation, Paul reminded them what they already had in Christ was enough. To remove Christ from his place of preeminence would be to destroy the gospel because Christ is at the very heart of the gospel. We learn that the gospel message isn't centered on philosophy or doctrine or religious system but rather in a person. Let's not forget also that God is the one who grants us hope, who gifts us faith and love as an act of his sovereign grace. It's all the work of God and the power of the gospel through Jesus Christ. That's why Paul gives thanks to God for the Colossians, because he's the author of their salvation. Again, all thanks be to God. And with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the second component, the content of the church, verses 5b to 6. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So here Paul moves from the gospel's impact in the church to the gospel's growth in Colossae and in the whole world. He begins by saying, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So we need to ask ourselves, what's the this referring to that they have previously heard? Paul's connecting back to what he just talked about. That is the hope that's laid up in heaven. When the Colossians first heard the gospel, when the gospel first came to them from Epaphras, they heard of the hope which is always preached as part of the gospel. In fact, hope is, hope is inherent to the gospel itself. Do you ever think about this hope? Do you ever think about the hope that you have in the gospel? How often does your mind gravitate towards your glorious future? You know what? There's much more to come for believers in Christ. There's much more to come. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 
We can't grasp the greatness of what lies ahead for us, but we get glimpses of it by God's revelation. As the saying goes, we ain't seen nothing yet. For the Christian, the best is yet to come. Our hope is present now, but fully realized in the future. Let me tell you a story about a woman who was diagnosed with a terminal illness and had been given three months to live. As she was getting her things in order, she contacted her pastor and asked him to come to her house to discuss some of her final wishes. She told him which, which song she wanted sung at, at her funeral service, what scripture verses she would like to be read, and what outfit she wanted to be buried in. She requested to be buried with her favorite Bible. As the pastor prepared to leave, the woman suddenly remembered something else. There's one more thing, she said excitedly. What's that, said the pastor. This is important, the woman said. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. The pastor stood looking at the woman, not knowing quite what to say. The woman explained, in all my years of attending church socials and potluck dinners, when the dishes of the main course were being cleared, someone would inevitably lean over and say, keep your fork. It was my favorite part of the meal because I knew something better was coming, like velvety chocolate cake or deep dish apple pie. So when people see me in that casket with a fork in my hand and they ask, what's with the fork? I want you to tell them, keep your fork. The best is yet to come. Brothers and sisters, for us, the best is yet to come. And so, may we dwell upon our future grace and salvation more and more. May we seek to be heavily minded as those who are focused on Christ and saturated with his word. May we meditate increasingly on what Jesus has done, on what he's doing now, and also on what's still in store. Don't lose sight of your hope that's secure and settled in heaven. We know the world is on a mad mission, searching for hope. And sometimes we as believers can be just like the world. We start searching for hope in all the wrong places, in all the wrong people, forgetting that we already have a hope that's promised. So how do we know we have this hope? How can we be confident this hope belongs to us? Because it's wrapped up in the word of truth, the gospel. It's not an experience of hope or the product of our imagination. It's not subjective. It's objective. It's not relative truth. It's absolute truth. We can be confident of this hope because it stems from the word of truth. The word of truth or the true message of salvation is how we can be convinced we have hope. The two terms, the word of truth and the gospel that we see here in verse 6 are synonyms. That means that the word of truth is the gospel and the gospel is the word of truth. Again, as believers, we don't have to go searching for this hope. We don't have to work up a good feeling of hope. God's unchanging character and word assures us that our hope is secure in Christ. In fact, this hope is described as a sure and steady anchor of the soul in Hebrews 6.19.
that can never break or drift away. Additionally, the only truth is God's truth. The only truth is God's truth. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Think about that for a second. There are many messages and ideas that can be called true, but only God's word can be called truth. And not only is God's word the only truth, but Jesus is the only way to be saved. Jesus says of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. And because there's only one God, there's only one gospel and only one way to be saved. That's what we're told in Acts 4, 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, when when people hear that, they hate the fact that Christianity is exclusive. They call us judgmental. They accuse us of not being loving. The truth is, as Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 18, whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Did you catch that? Whoever does not believe in Christ is not only condemned eternally, but condemned already, and the wrath of God remains on them. John 3.36 So let me tell you something you already know. Christianity is not popular. It isn't popular. So as believers, we need, we need to stand for the truth. We need to tell other people this unpopular message that Jesus is the only way and that they need him. We know that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Christ's victory over sin, Satan, and death. We have to remember the context. The Colossians were being exposed to a false message. And what do false messages do? They offer false hope. Paul calls this empty deceit in chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The false teachers were seeking to destroy God's truth and seeking to spread lies. And who's the liar but Satan himself? John 8, 44. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The gospel of Christ is nothing less than the truth. It comes from God and can be trusted. We don't add to it and we don't subtract from it. What have we learned throughout the church history? Men have tried to destroy God's truth, but the word of truth still stands. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. That's hope. That's how we know we have hope. That's how the Colossian believers knew they had hope. This hope doesn't come as a result of hearing the gospel. This hope, sorry, this hope comes as a result of hearing the gospel. Don't miss that. 
Notice that the gospel comes as a word. That means by preaching and teaching, which demands a listening and a response, an understanding response. The only way to have true hope is to hear and receive the word of truth, the gospel. We're told that this was true of the Colossians. They heard the gospel and received it by faith. Look again at verse 5. They heard the gospel. Did they work for it? Did they earn it? No, they, they simply heard it and understood it and by God's grace believed it. To put it another way, they heard, obeyed, and embraced the good news of Jesus Christ. And the verb there, understand or understood, is a strong word. It speaks of a firm grasp of the truth. It means to know or to recognize or to come to really know. It even has a sense of, a full, of having a full appreciation of or to truly appreciate. Paul's not talking about some superficial, ordinary level of understanding. He's talking about understanding something for what it really is and treasuring it. The Colossians heard the word of truth from Epaphras and understood the grace of God in truth. Next, after Paul has reminded the Colossians how God has worked in them, he's going to remind them that the power of the gospel didn't just take place in Colossae. He's going to tell them about the continuing effects of the gospel. Look at verse 6. The gospel had come to the Colossians just as it had around the whole world. That tells us something. That tells us that the word of truth, this message of salvation, it tells us who it's intended for. It's good news for the whole world. And if any of you have been on a mission trip or know believers in other parts of the world, you've seen the clear effects of the power of the gospel. I've been to church services in in many different countries. As you might know, our, our family served and spent a couple of years in Thailand. There, we met believers and unbelievers. There, we went to both English-speaking churches and Thai-speaking churches, and we made friends in the community. There, we saw people get saved, and we saw people reject the gospel. And can you guess what message of hope saved people in Thailand? The same message that gives us hope is the same message that gives believers in Thailand hope. It's the same message that gives people throughout the world hope, those in France or Africa or any other place. All throughout the world and all throughout history, the message of truth has never changed. Its power has never been diminished. Although we were in a different country with a different culture and one that spoke a different language, when meeting and seeing believers, there was a sense of great similarity. The same message that saved us is the same message that saved them. And the same kind of gospel love that we know is the same kind of gospel love that they know. It's because we have the same Savior and the same God of all. Again, all thanks be to God. The truth is, everyone is born in need of salvation. Everyone comes into the world with sin, a universal condition with no solution other than Jesus Christ. That's why if people are to be saved, they must hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And how are they to hear? Who's going to bring the message of salvation to their ears? The gospel is described as something that bears fruit and increases. The NASB says that it's constantly bearing fruit and increasing. That means that once you've been transformed by the grace of God, once you've come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you'll begin to bear fruit and grow as an individual. And that comes as a result of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The Holy Spirit works in you to produce fruit, and the Holy Spirit works through you to, pro- to proclaim the gospel to others. And as others hear the word of truth, they, by God's grace, come to understand it and believe it, and so grows the church of Jesus Christ. And wasn't this true of the Colossians? Epaphras hears the gospel from Paul in Ephesus, gets saved, takes the gospel message back to his hometown of Colossae. He preaches the gospel, people get saved, the church is started. The church at Colossae is a testimony to the power of the gospel. It shows that it's bearing fruit and growing as indeed it's also doing around the world. Every convert in Colossae adds to the fruitfulness and increase of the gospel. This was a good reminder to these Colossian saints. Their fruitfulness, their love for all the saints was evidence of the truth of the gospel in their lives. Also, since the gospel has exerted its power widely, since it since it spreads and continues to spread throughout the world, it's a testimony to its truthfulness over against the false teachers who are propagating lies. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The word of truth has power and is at work in believers because it's not the word of men, but the word of God. And the gospel continues to bear fruit and increases, and and continues to increase. It's not just a numerical growth. It's also, um, we need to recognize the impact of the gospel. The word of truth that's bearing fruit and growing in Colossae and throughout the whole world is the same word of truth that continues to produce fruit in us and continues to do its work to grow us. And that's great news. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just good news one time. It's good news all the time. That's why you must preach the gospel to yourselves daily. Just as important as the first time you heard it, understood it, and by God's grace believed it, just as important as that was, you need to keep on hearing the gospel and keep on understanding it more and more, and allow the implications of the gospel to reach further and further into the small, hidden crevices of your heart and into every corner of your lives. The point is to keep on hearing, keep on understanding, and by, God, by the grace of God, keep believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's something important to keep in mind. God is the one ultimately responsible for the success of the gospel and the maturity of his people. It's all about God. Paul's not telling the Colossian saints how good of a job they're doing. 
He's not thanking them for their faithfulness and love. Let me remind you, Paul's sitting in chains in prison, praying about this church that he's never visited before. He's not panicking. Rather, he's giving thanks to God. Look at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God gets all the glory. So before we move on to the last point, what are some of the things that we've learned here? First, if people are to be saved, they must hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if they're to hear, we who are saved must be the ones to carry that message. Are we doing our part? Second, the gospel continues to grow because it speaks to the universal condition of all people, regardless of their cultural, ethnic, or socioeconomical background. Third, the gospel produces fruit both in the internal transformation of individuals and also in the external growth of the church. And lastly, Paul was reminding the Colossian saints how good, how God had worked in them. It was a God-given hope through a God-given gospel message which continues to work in them and through them. That's the content of the church. The third and final component of a true church, the commission of the church, verses 7 and 8. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul now recaps how the Colossians received the gospel from Epaphras and shows us God's work is accomplishing his purposes throughout the world. In verses 7 and 8, we're going to see that although salvation is solely by God's grace, he uses us as channels of, of that grace. In other words, God chooses to work his plan of salvation through his faithful servants. Paul tells us that the Colossians learned the gospel from Epaphras. And by way of reminder, during Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus, Epaphras came across Paul's message of preaching, and he was saved. Epaphras would take the message of the gospel back to Colossae, and there the church was founded. And after a period of time, with Paul now in prison, a threat challenged the church in Colossae, one that Epaphras needed Paul's help on, and so he leaves the church to go visit Paul in prison to tell him all that is going on with the church in Colossae. One of those things he tells Paul is, look at verse 8. Epaphras tells Paul, he makes known to Paul the Colossian saints' love in the Spirit. Let's not miss that. Love in the Spirit. Out of the out of the many things Epaphras made known to Paul, we have written for us in Scripture the thing that must have stood out in Paul's mind, the thing that must have been mentioned often to Paul. And what was that thing? The Colossians' love in the Spirit. What a beautiful thing to be true of a church. What a lovely description of the believers in Colossae. Not a perfect church, but one characterized by a love in the Spirit. And along with that, Epaphras will tell Paul about the false teachers and the false teaching that was threatening the church. And this results in Paul writing this letter to the Colossians. 
Next, we have Paul describing Epaphras as a beloved fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ. A beloved fellow servant and a faithful minister of Christ. That description answers this question for us. What are we as Christians? What are we as Christians? Answer, we're fellow servants called to be faithful ministers of Christ. As Epaphras was Paul's beloved fellow servant, so are all of us fellow servants to one another. All of us are, all of us as fellow servants or fellow slaves, we're all under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We're merely his instruments. That means that our mission is to serve him. We're to work together and alongside one another for Christ. As fellow slaves, we need to be faithful ministers of Christ. And how are we to do that? We've learned that we belong to the same master. And if we belong, and if we're to be faithful, then we need to do the will of our master at all times. That would include preaching the gospel. The gospel doesn't just involve hearing, it, it, it also involves learning. The Colossians learned the gospel from Epaphras, and Epaphras learned it from Paul. We need to continue to learn, to be taught, to be instructed in, in the faith and in how to live as believers. We don't just arrive as Christians by hearing and believing the gospel. The gospel changes us so that we can begin to live a life pleasing to God, so that we can begin to live a life pleasing to God. And here we find the commission of the church. We're fellow slaves to one another. We're slaves to Christ, and we're to, we're to be his faithful ministers. A true church will obey the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and, the, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We use the content of the church the word of truth, the gospel, and we're to take it and make disciples of all nations. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This is the church's task. You can't just be here to hear the word of God each Sunday. You're not just called to be a faithful listener, but also to be a faithful minister of Christ. The church has been commissioned with the gospel to take it to the whole world. Some questions that shouldn't escape us here are, are we living as colleagues, as co-laborers for Christ? Are we being faithful ministers of Christ? Are we serving on his behalf? Many things can keep us from living this out in our lives. Let me tell you a story of a survivor of the Titanic. Survivor Eva Hart remembers the night, April 15, 1912, on which the Titanic plunged 12,000 feet to the Atlantic floor, some two hours and 40 minutes after an iceberg tore a 300-foot gash in the starboard side. She says, I saw all the horror of its sinking, and I heard, even more dreadful, the cries of drowning people. Although 20 lifeboats and rafts were launched, too few and only partly filled, most of the passengers ended up struggling in the icy seas while those in the boats waited a safe distance away. Lifeboat number 14 
did row back to the scene after the unsinkable ship slipped from sight at 2.20 a.m. Alone, it chased cries in the darkness, seeking and saving a precious few. Incredibly, no other boat joined it. Some were already overloaded, but in virtually every other boat, those already saved rowed their half-filled boats aimlessly in the night, listening to the cries of the lost. Each feared a crush of unknown swimmers would cling to their craft, eventually swamping it. I came to seek and to save the lost, our Savior said, and he commissioned us to do the same. But we face a large obstacle, fear. While people drown in the treacherous waters around us, we are tempted to stay dry and to make certain no one rocks the boat. You know, just as this story has just revealed, something that often keeps the gospel silent and hidden in our lives is fear. When you think about it, we fear because we love ourselves too much. We love ourselves too much. We fear we'll be rejected. We fear we'll be hated. We fear we'll be mocked. And that kind of thinking distances us so far from the power of the gospel. Listen, the power isn't in a method or in a man or a woman. It's as Steve Lawson says, the greatness of the gospel is not found in the messenger, but in the message. The power is in the message. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power of God through the message of salvation is truth for all and has power to save all. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 It's been well said, the word of God has the power to bring forth fruit when it's placed in divinely prepared soil. I'll say that again. The word of God has the power to bring forth fruit when it's placed in divinely prepared soil. Again, it's the power of God through the message of salvation. Look around. You didn't save those sitting next to you. The fact that anyone is sitting in here today is the work of God, not the work of man. We merely serve him by being faithful and true to the message of salvation. Just like someone was faithful to you to proclaim the message of salvation. Just like someone was faithful to Christ in telling you the gospel. Do you remember who proclaimed the gospel to you? Was it your parents, a friend, a co-worker, one of your relatives, maybe a pastor? You came to saving faith in Jesus Christ through someone that declared it the gospel to you. And how did that person come to know the gospel? Someone told them the good news of Jesus Christ. And so it has been this way for the entirety of church history. The gospel goes forth, people get saved. The gospel goes forth from them, others get saved, and so on and so on. We're all recipients of the grace of God. And I hope you're beginning to recognize the impact and influence you can make as you do your part to faithfully Make Jesus Christ known. How wonderful that God gives us the privilege and sobering responsibility of being his agents in proclaiming the gospel of his grace. That God would choose to work his plan of salvation 
through us, his faithful servants, that God would use us to represent him, the king of heaven, here on earth, that God would use broken people to be trophies of his grace, that God would use us for his glory. What a thought that is, that God uses us to make much of him. And you know, only a humble heart finds great value in that statement. May we be faithful to share with others the gospel that has meant so much to us. We must grow in gospel depth. The gospel should continue to bear fruit and mature within us. And how can we cultivate that? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, Colossians 3, 16. Not only must we grow in gospel depth, but also in gospel witness. The gospel that produces an inward growth must result in outward growth as well. The gospel that's preached inside these walls must be proclaimed outside these walls. We need to realize that the Great Commission, the task and mission of the church, is an earthly endeavor for us, powered and fulfilled ultimately by God himself. And I say an earthly endeavor because there's no evangelism that will take place in heaven, only worship. Once a person departs from this world, they'll no longer have the opportunity to hear the saving message of Jesus Christ. Go and tell the world what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and des- deserving of full acceptance that, Je- that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ saves sinners. We have the good news. We're, we're recipients of it by God's grace. So as faithful servants to, to Christ, woe to us if the good news never gets out. We've learned of the power and impact of the gospel. It saves and continues to save and sanctify people all over the world. It continues to spread as, as I'm speaking now. And as Paul is encouraging and reminding the Colossians, so should we be encouraged and reminded of who we are in Christ. Return again and again to the gospel for comfort and encouragement. The young Colossian church was discovering what it was like to believe in Jesus and to follow him. And Paul says, stay true to the gospel. And that's my exhortation as well. Stay true to Christ and to the gospel. We've seen the three components of a true church. The character of the church, the content of the church, and the commission of the church. First, a true church is one that is characterized by men and women who have heard and embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ by placing their faith in Christ alone. That implies that the church preaches the gospel, which you don't have to worry about here at this church. Also, the character of the church can be seen by the evidence of faith demonstrated by a love for all the saints and men and women who live in light of the hope laid up for them in heaven. In other words, the church should consist of saints who understand how to love one another and who understand that no matter what is happening in their life, they have a hope that can't be taken away. Second, a true church has as, it has as its content the gospel, the word of truth, 
the gospel must be central to everything about the church. If it doesn't point people to Jesus Christ or grow them more into his likeness, then the church should reconsider how to be better stewards of the resources he has given us. The gospel message is what has the power. It's what bears fruit and increases within the church and also worldwide. As the gospel takes root in a church, the natural result is an eagerness and an urgency to see it proclaimed to the lost. That takes us to the third thing. A true church is one who doesn't just experience the gospel, but one who is faithful to proclaim it. The beauty of the gospel is the change and effect it produces. We know that's, that it's the Lord who opens hearts and opens eyes. But we're also reminded of Romans 10:14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So how are we doing, church? Are these three components of a true, true of Winona Gospel Church? Remember, Paul is writing this from prison. He's in prison because of the gospel. In God's perfect providence, Paul finds himself writing to a church that started out because he was being a faithful minister to Christ. His faithfulness to Christ led to the grace of God in Epaphras' life and his faithfulness led to the conversion of Colossians and the founding of the Colossian church. All that didn't happen by chance or mistake. Likewise, we're all here because other people were faithful to, to share Christ with us. We're not here by mistake or chance either. And if we're not here randomly, then we're here with purpose and intention. In the beginning, I told you that there's only one story that can take you from eternal death to everlasting life. Through the person and work of Christ, we're all a part of that story with many others who are yet to be added. And so, may the Lord help us to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. May we understand that we have a saving message from a God who saves. And if you're not a believer, now is the time to respond to the gospel. Will you repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ alone as the only hope for salvation, or, or will you reject the gospel and remain in your sins without hope, without Christ, and destined for eternity in hell? How, will you how you respond has eternal consequences. Jesus is the only way and the only hope for your lost soul. Come to him, and you can know and experience true hope. You'll never have to go looking again. Hope is found in Christ alone. How will you respond? Don't delay. Don't harden your heart. Today is a day of salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for the way you have worked in our lives to save us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us and give us the boldness to proclaim him to others, the message that has so uh, gracefully come to us, we who are undeserving, we who are yet sinners while, while you came, sent your son to die on the cross for us. We pray that we would be faithful ministers to, to, to you and fellow servants to one another. In Christ's name I pray, amen.